Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go also that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. As, uh, as we come out of John 10, talking about the shepherd and the sheep, a theme emerges that is kind of essential for us to understand. As God flock, we don't always understand what he's doing. It is often not plain to us what the meaning of something is until God reveals it. And that kind of makes sense, except so many things in our world just don't make sense in light of a sovereign God. And so I started thinking about that more in light of something like John 11, where Jesus raises someone from the dead. And I thought to myself this phrase, which I think is important. If your God always makes sense to you, then your God is made up. But with Jesus... We're not making a God in our own image, but we are the ones being remade to look and think like him. This passage today is rooted in the idea that future understanding in any situation, in any time, future understanding is found when we remain in Christ. We are being shepherded and led. Another way to say this is 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith not by sight. We don't live out of an understanding. We live out of the fact that we don't understand it all. We have faith because faith defines this whole outlook we have. And it's what literally frames the world around us so that we can understand it. But Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says it clear about God. If we if we could understand God, we would not want to worship that God. If that God was so easy to understand, it would be pointless to look to him for anything. We wouldn't need him. And Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our own understanding and wisdom does not lead us. Jesus, Jesus leads us. And we get wisdom and understanding as things in, unfold in front of us, but he is the one who brings the understanding. We don't get the understanding apart from him. 
So Proverbs 3, 5, we know this passage, but trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The book of John and all of the gospels are the accounts of people who realized what Jesus was doing after the fact, right? The gospels being written are being written usually a time after Jesus had already done these things. Most of the people in these stories don't get what's happening. You see them get glimpses, but they don't have the fullest understanding. They don't know what's really going on. They're literally along for the ride. And in any time period, in any place, Jesus' disciples are in that same spot. We are learning how to look to Jesus. We are not learning to understand the world that won't make sense to us until he reveals it. Does that make sense? When we talk about understanding and learning, what we're really talking about is we're talking about looking to Jesus because that is the understanding that we know. That is us. We are sheep. And as sheep, we look to Jesus. So as we look at John 11 and this passage that Jesus does a miracle and you see these people intertwined in this miracle and they all have varying levels of faith and understanding in what's going on. What's really in interesting is, is it's not a black and white thing. There aren't people who are in the know and people who aren't. There are people who have faith in Jesus and there are people who don't. But in this story, everybody does and it's wild. But they don't understand so many of them are like, why in the world are we going there? What are we doing here, Jesus? Why weren't you here four days ago? And so as we look at this story, I think this section, underneath this idea that we look to Jesus not to try to understand everything, underneath that idea, there's these three things that come out in this passage. And I would really look at this section of scripture and title it, Love and Death and Distance, because that is what this is about. Now, what's wild is that all of us at any one point in our life can recognize that each one of these things are ever-present. There is a sense of love, right? There is a sense that Jesus deeply loves those around him in this story and is often working out his plan for what is happening, even when they don't see it. We see extraordinary love between individuals, and different kinds of love are used in this passage. Death. With such finality, death sweeps into all lives. What is God doing in death? Why does Jesus allow people to die physically if he is bringing eternal life? Now, death may bring a finality on earthly life for now, but it also brings a lot of questions because it seemingly hangs over all of life. We will all die. And when Jesus comes, unless Jesus comes back, and thus death has gripped mankind since the beginning of time. And distance. This passage is marked by distance. There's a gap in understanding, a gap in time, and a gap in expectations. And all of this is for the glory of God and highlights the passage I just read in Isaiah 55. So today we're only going to do verses 1 to 27, and then to next week Dr. Voorhees is going to come and he'll finish out the passage. He's going to get to talk about the actual resurrection of Lazarus, and he's going to get to talk about Jesus weeping and things like that. But this will all frame the emotion that we experience in this passage along as we read it. So John 11, 1 to 3. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
Now, Bethany's only a couple of miles from Jerusalem, but it's about 35 miles away from where Jesus is at right now. If you remember, Jesus is on the Jordan River where John the Baptist was working. And so we see this picture of some people who are involved. And there's a distance between these people, right? You've got Mary, and Mary is known, if you remember the story of Mary and Martha, where Jesus comes into Bethany, and Martha says, come hang out in my house. And then Martha starts getting all worked up and hosting, and Mary's just hanging out with Jesus. And that whole situation, right? Mary is there and is considered to be doing the greater thing because Mary is the one who is sitting and listening to Jesus. You've got Martha, who at least as a typification, unfortunately, Martha gets a little bit of a bad rap in this sense because in Luke 10, she's the one who is told by Jesus, no, 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 Mary has chosen the better way. But Martha very clearly, at the end of this section that we're going to read today, Martha very clearly has some understanding She's been listening. She knows who Jesus is, and she's been listening to his teaching. And then Lazarus, not much of an appearance. Towards the end of the passage, you'll see him come out of a tomb. That's exciting. But we really don't know anything else about him. He literally has one other section in Scripture where he is mentioned, and that is a dinner at Mary and Martha's house. He is not given a large monologue after his resurrection, though that would be interesting. He literally only is this and and sitting at a table. Uh, A cool detail that could easily be missed here. Actually, in 11.3, when Mary and Martha send this to Jesus, they say, he whom you love is ill. Now, if you don't know this, most of the time in scripture, there's a few different words for love. And the word that's used most of the time in scripture is agape or agapio or whatever you want to say. And that word is a different kind of love than is mentioned in 11.3. So agape love is like a steadfast, it's a sacrificial, covenanted, overpowering, preeminent, chosen, contented, welcoming, extraordinary fondness, caring, observant, perfect love. In 1 John 4, agape is what, like, it says God is love, it's God is agape. That's a different type of love than is mentioned here in 11.3, which is really interesting for perspective, right? When it says that Jesus loved the world in John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? When it talks about God loving the world, that's agape love, right? That's a specific type of love that's there, but it's not a cheap love. It's not an inexclusive love. It's a type of love. It's a perfect, holy love. And yet there's another kind of love. It's phileo. It's a friendship love. It's a camaraderie love. It's a sense of like, hey, we're in this together, and I like you, man. It's typically spoken of between, uh, in the ancient world, it's typically spoken of between male relationships, but not exclusively. And you look at this phileo love, and this is really interesting. I don't know about you, but I'd like to know a little more detail about Jesus's friends than just he raised them from the dead and they sat at a dinner with him. This is something really fascinating. And in John 15, we'll see this because Jesus actually says this. He calls us friend, which is a root word of phileo. And so when we look at this, we understand this. There is something so earthly, innate, and experiential about the fact that Jesus was 100% human and he had friends. Now, some of us in the room, I, I understand This can be a little bit of a weird topic, and it's kind of odd, and it's a little bit of an aside today, to be honest with you. But if you want to follow Jesus, you don't go it alone. 
You agape love everyone. And you agape love every time that you can. But phileo love is real. There will be people in your life who you feel a sense of camaraderie with. It's not a perfect love. That's agape. But it's the kind of love where you experience a time together. Maybe it's a trip. Maybe it's a season of life. Whatever it might be. And what's interesting is Jesus experiences this. But this will also frame the emotion that we see in this passage. Jesus does feel agape love. But many people have died around Jesus at this time. And yet, why in John eleven thirty five 35 does it say that Jesus wept? And in actuality, wept is such a small word comparatively. Not just that it's four letters, but it doesn't define the true sense of deep emotion. It's framed by this idea that Jesus looked at his friend the way that he looked at his friend. But what's really fascinating is as we move forward in this passage, you're going to see that Jesus is balancing, like we all do, this sense of calling and purpose along with this sense of friendship. And how he's going to approach Lazarus is an example of how he also approaches his mission. Because his disciples are going to have a point here. Why are we going to Bethany? Now, Jesus responds to Mary and Martha in 11.4, and he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about why bad things happen. But ultimately, um, this idea that that, that this illness is for the glory of God, you guys, God is so good, and he's so above us, and he's so high, that each instance actually is something that he receives glory from. Each time and thing, he is literally receiving glory. Why? Because he is glorified. And that's what God does as sovereign. He literally can see and take any situation that way. And so as we talk about this, I find it interesting how plain Jesus is here, right? Like that response is not coded. This is not a parable, This illness does not lead to death. Tell Mary and Martha. Now, can you imagine Mary and Martha then when Lazarus dies? Their whole world shattered. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he's God come. They believe, and he lied to them. Why? Because their framework was still what their Jesus was operating in. Their Jesus hadn't yet raised someone from the dead like that in their mind. They couldn't see it. They didn't have the category for that yet. But this is such an example to us as we go forward in this passage. Jesus operates outside of a framework that we have. We do not have understanding when it comes to Jesus. We have faith. We do not have a grip on who Jesus is and how he is and why he does what he does and why he allows what he allows in our world now. What we have is a shepherd. What we have is somebody taking care of us who does understand. The confidence in this circumstance and this story is found in the fact that these people don't understand and Jesus does something beyond it. John eleven five. 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now this was interesting. This is agape love here, okay? This is a different love. Now it's not a worse love. It's not an inexclusive love. It is an exclusive love for these people, 
Why does he say this? Because I think it's going to, again, inform what happens next. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, if you remember before, the Jews were seeking to stone him. So that's what the disciples say. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were seeking to stone us. We probably shouldn't go there, right? They may still have the rocks in their house. We don't know. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the the light is not in him. Okay. Thanks, Jesus. I am more confused now than I was before. And when we see verses five and six, like, I, I, I look at this passage and I'm just like, I can't imagine, like, this is so perplexing. Number one, why would he stay two days longer? I don't know. Number two, why would he then go back to Judea when they want to stone him? And the disciples are like, this is logical, Jesus. You probably don't want to go there. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay. And number three, what is this whole night, day, stumbling, walking thing? I don't even, that doesn't even make sense. And it took, like, I couldn't even, and guys, when I prep for studying, I try as hard as I can to, like, just observe the passage enough for that 95 to 97% of stuff just comes out of the passage itself. And then from there, I just make sure I'm not a heretic. But, like, I could not figure out what, this, what Jesus was saying. I literally couldn't. Like, I was like, I don't get it. Like, I, I observed it all. I broke down each word. I mapped it, which for, for Bible nerds, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Like, I tried to figure it out. And I was like, Jesus, what are you getting at? But what's interesting is, is I started to then go back and look at the context. See, Jesus right now is at the Jordan River. And at the end of John 10, we see him having incredible fruit in his ministry and almost no opposition. So when Jesus gets the news of Lazarus's death, this is a golden period in his ministry. This is a time when you should sit and stay where you're at because you're seeing fruit. Now, I've heard this a lot in pastoral circles and different people that I've talked to, and it's like, nah, man, you just go where there's fruit. You just go where there's fruit. And if you're having fruit, you stay. If you're seeing people come to know the Lord, stay. If you're, if you're witnessing people like being healed of stuff, stay. I've seen this and heard this over and over again, and it made sense. But then I thought to myself, gosh, if my God made sense all the time, then I made him up. He doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Even when I think about phileo love and friendship love, this doesn't make sense. Why would he do this? Why would he say, we're going to go back to Judea again. I'm going to leave all these people who are coming to me and wanting to hear from me and actually coming to follow me in a way and being healed of stuff. I'm going to take off and I'm going to go take care of little old Lazarus who has like five verses in all the Bible. So on a human level, the disciples have a great point. In their minds, it would be better to continue to gather people to yourself. But that is them firmly leaning on their own understanding. And Jesus, in this whole section of John, 
And in the miracles that John chooses to highlight, what's interesting is you see the disciples developing into somebody who could actually continue the ministry of Jesus. But right now, what they're going to continue in is their framework. And as Jesus fixes that and builds new scaffolding in their mind for what's possible, they're not going to know and understand everything. One thing about leaning on our own understanding, and this is what the disciples are doing here, and it might be somewhat masked, okay? There's a mix of the mixed motivation in this for the disciples. Yes, we're seeing fruit. Yes, we should stay. But also, we're afraid of death. We're afraid to die. One thing about leaning on your own understanding is that we will be tempted to make decisions out of fear rather than faith and love. You can tell pretty firmly when you're leaning on your own understanding when you stop making decisions out of faith. When they're not rooted in who Jesus is, they're rooted in what you're trying to protect. Now, what's interesting is is we don't always know why someone's making the decision they're making. What we do know is that their heart before the Lord, if they're a follower of Jesus, is being shaped and changed. Now, we saw this early on in in something like the pandemic as people felt different ways and did different things and and acted out of fear in different forms and are still doing that. And I want you to know as a precursor that if you're somebody who's right now in that spot where you're acting out of fear, at the end of this message, that's going to be my application, so prepare yourself. That doesn't mean that I'm here to wreck you. That means I want to show you that in this passage, it highlights something very interesting. And that is that you can, if you find a way to lean on your own understanding, you can make a mixed motivation out of something. You can find a way to make it muddy. You may know what you should do out of faith, but instead you muddy that motivation and you say, well, here's my logic. And I will just express to you this. God wants us to use reason, but there's a point in which you know when you need to act out of faith, if you're simply and holistically beginning to add logic to your fear, then you're in a bad spot. If you start to take information that you receive and only receive information that literally adds logic to your fear, then you're in a spot where you're no longer acting in faith. And the disciples here are giving us an example of this. They believe in Jesus. They don't know Jesus fully yet. They're learning him. But as they do, unfortunately, their faith in who Jesus is also has in it this tendency, this mixed motivation for both fear and acting in logic that is opposite to faith. But this does not deter Jesus. This is not who Jesus is. Jesus isn't operating out of fear. He's not afraid of Lazarus' death, and he's not afraid of his own death, and he's not afraid of the death of disciples. He's not afraid. Jesus walks in a boldness that comes from faith and confidence in God. And we see this at the end of the passage, right, where he says, Father, thank you that you've listened to me. He doesn't say that because he needs to talk to God about that. That's not a renewal of confidence. That's a sense that other people around him need to realize they are being shepherded. You are firmly in the hands of a leader. Your fear may feel like you're trying to protect yourself, but your fear is actually a reflection 
of you living in your own understanding. So what about that light thing and like living in it and stumbling and all that stuff? I, I literally, I looked this up several times, so I hope whoever told me these things is correct and I think they are. I think that he is saying that people who are walking in the light need not fear death or stumbling because death will not end the light and they will go on living and that the light will not be extinguished until God has sovereignly ordained it. Here's the idea. You are protected to do the thing that God has asked you to do and God has those days numbered And as I say that, if you check out now, you're going to miss the rest of what I'm about to say, but I want you to hear this from Psalm 139 so that you understand that your hand is not the hand that holds death or life for yourself, that you are held in God's hand. Psalm 139, 16 says, you saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God has an understanding of your day of death, and he is leading you as a believer. You do not need to worry about whether the day that you die, you die too early or not. Now, this is kind of wild for me to say out loud here because I think culturally this is such a different thought process. But like, we do distance ourselves from death, and death is a great fear in our culture, and death is something that, very much so can run many people's lives. How are they running from death? And even you, some of you, some of us as believers, we came to Jesus running from death. But in reality, there's got to be a transition where we go from running from death to running to Jesus and realizing like, oh, my faith is in someone and death no longer is my great enemy. In fact, the great enemy now is not death. The great enemy now is unfaithfulness. God knows our days, and we will not die too early. But those who don't have faith have a much different view of death. If someone someone does not walk in the light, that person's death, or stumbling, is final darkness and has no provision for death. They're just going about their life, and death happened. It's a terrifying reality because of the finality of it. In a moment, the lights are out and it is dark. Despite the realization that our days are ordained, I want to be clear that this passage is not saying that we should be flippant or careless. That's not acting in faith. Okay? It is not acting in faith to say, my days are ordained, so I'm going to be dangerous. That's not how this works. Acting in faith means you walk behind your leader. And you are not afraid to do things in faith. It doesn't mean that you foolishly do things to test faith. It means you are not afraid to walk in faith. What I'm saying here is this. Death is not what we fear most. For those of us who are Christians, death is just another way we glorify God somehow. So do not take what Jesus is saying here and what I'm saying here and make this a reason to be brazen or brash or fearful or timid. The way to see it is that nothing is meaningless when you're walking in the light. All of a sudden, each and every circumstance is leading towards the ultimate outcome, eternity with Jesus, ruling in a perfect world in a perfect resurrected body. So we are not people who act out of fear. Rather, like Jesus, we act out of love, perfect agape love. And Jesus is teaching his disciples this. He's walking them through as he leads them. What an incredible lesson. We're not going to understand this today. 
This is a lifetime of walking with your shepherd every day, seeing the different things that come up in life that demand your fear. And if you're not very afraid, become a parent. Because when you do, you'll realize, oh, I am fearful of things in the world. But you're not. I remember when I was, I felt like the Lord called me to go to Syria in 2007. And, my, and I've told this story before, but my mom sat me down at a subway. And she was just like, don't do this. Don't do this. And I was like, I... I wouldn't if I didn't feel like the Lord wanted me to. Like, I didn't wake up one morning going, you know, heard Syria's got great beaches. But I felt like there was something the Lord was asking me to do in faith. And in faith, that became one of the things that defined my love. As a child who lived through 9-11, it broke my fear of people. It broke that sense in me of looking at other people one way or another. And it helped me to see that God was doing something in every corner of every part of the world. And I got to taste and just a glimpse of it. And that faith was an incredibly important thing as I moved forward to learn how to love people. Amazing. Jesus wanted me to love more, so he conquered a fear. And Jesus wanted my mom to love more, and so he helped her when I got back. And yet fear of death is very natural for us, is it not? That finality sense, we're hardwired to protect ourselves and those instincts are good, right? That's not a bad thing, right? Jesus many times escaped because it wasn't the time for his death, right? But we realize that faith means that death is not the worst thing that can happen. For us to try to abandon our shepherd because something doesn't make sense to us out of fear, and that's the worst thing. It is better to die doing what God wants you to do because you can't add a single minute to your life anyway. Now, I think the disciples kind of get this lesson, but I think this next section is probably the biggest misunderstanding we're going to have. This is 11 to 17. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. <laughs> and the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. He's probably just getting better. Everybody knows when you're sick, you need sleep. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he, was take, he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly. I love this. This is like, sometimes Jesus speaks in parables, and sometimes Jesus uses three words, and it's like, Lazarus has died, guys. Okay? I, know, I said asleep. I get that. But Lazarus has died, and for your sake... Now that I'm seeing how you're responding, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, good old doubting Thomas, but not in this instance, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with Jesus. He's looking at this and he's saying, Jesus, if we go back to Judea, they're going to kill us. So if you want to raise your buddy from the dead or if he's sleeping, why are we going? Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. But the disciples literally thought in their mind and had settled in their heart, there's our shepherd. I guess if the shepherd wants to lead us to the wolves, we'll go. I love this because it is such a microcosm of faith. There is no understanding. 
Despite the fact that Jesus is being so plain, there is no understanding here. There's just a shepherd and sheep, and they're walking, and they're like, fine, we'll go and die then. But I love that picture of faith, despite the fact that I hope I'm never like that. I hope I can understand Jesus, but I also hope if I don't understand Jesus, that I'm like, well, okay. It's a brilliant picture, and I feel like it defines so much of faith. There's so many times in our life where we're not going to know what's going on, and Jesus is going to lead us to something, and we're going to go, oh, I don't see it. (laughs) I really don't see it, Jesus, but okay. I'll go and get whatever. I really want that. Because it shows that the faith is rooted in the person of Jesus, not the possession of understanding. You guys, if Jesus is an intangible set of rules, then I want you to know there is a real Jesus, and he is a leader and a shepherd, and he will walk with you, and he will bring you along in a process, and he will teach you, and he will move in you. And for some of you, I understand that that is a hard concept, but this is all about being shepherded and walking in humility. It's not about how much you can know to outrun whatever thing you're scared of. And this is the key to faith, that we follow when it doesn't make sense. If we only follow when it makes sense to us, then we're running our own lives. John eleven seventeen, when Jesus came, they're finally back to Judea now, they're in Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, you can't blame them for thinking he was too late in the next section. It didn't make sense that he would show up so late, right? And why did he wait two days? I, th- this part for me, I could not tell whether Jesus waited the two days because the ministry was happening so well or if he waited for Lazarus to die and for it to be four days later, which culturally for them was kind of an important thing. So they had a weird cultural thought process about death and how uh, anything shorter than three days, possibly there's like somebody could literally hover over their spirit and be resuscitated. And it was just a weird cultural understanding. So I can't tell if that's what they were doing. But what I am confident of is that the fact that the detail of the four days is here means that to anybody who was there, this was not a resuscitation. This was a resurrection. This was not Jesus healing a guy who was really sick. This was Jesus raising somebody from the dead. And I think that that detail is super important because in four days, this dude stunk. This was not a pleasant miracle, okay? This was not the kind of thing where you would go, oh man, like he's embalmed and he's sitting there and we're all gonna do a viewing. This is not like that. Okay? The body does crazy things very shortly after death. I'm not going to get into it. That is most definitely not an area of understanding I have. But what I do know is this. As I looked into this, four days is not the time that you want to be hanging out around dead bodies. It happens quick. So where are Mary and Martha in this whole circumstance? So John 11, 18 to 23. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Now, it's common for mourners to be present for a while after someone dies in their culture, and there was actually specific, like, rules. So it's weird that Martha would actually leave to go meet Jesus. Um, I don't know why she did. I don't know if it's because she was angry. Some people think that. I think she just literally wanted to go talk to Jesus, and talking to Jesus wasn't going to happen at the house as easily. There's a lot of mourning going on. People are crying. There's actually people in that culture who were paid to do that. But her vision of the situation, Jesus, if, if you had come, he would not have died. Her vision and her framework was, my Jesus comes when I call him because he will heal me when I'm sick, not my Jesus does whatever he wants and can raise me from the dead. See, what happens is that Jesus is telling her and his, and his disciples, Jesus doesn't need our, our vision to determine his outcomes. He has outcomes that we don't know about. He has situations and things that we don't fully understand. And yet I love this because Martha's picture is also very respectful. She calls him Lord. And so her example of faith can be seen even more in 11, 24 to 27. As Jesus said he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha goes, I remember you talking about this, Jesus. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the God who's coming into the world. Now, her faith is the same as those disciples. She doesn't know the details of what's happening. She doesn't understand what's happening. She knows who Jesus is. And she's like, okay, Jesus. And that's the phrase in my mind that's coming out as I look at this more. And as I thought about this more this week, it's just this idea of, okay, Jesus, I'm right there with you. I am a sheep. You are a shepherd. I need to be shepherded. Now, everybody is acting out of some grief or fear or emotion in this passage. And it harkened back to our time. I thought about the fact that this is an illness. I thought about the fact that some people in this room have lost people to an illness this year. And they're wondering, like, God, what are you doing in the world? And some people, the flip is true. Like, they're, they're trying to figure out why their world is, in their minds, authoritarian and freaking out about something that's not as big of a deal. You've got so many people in so many different places fearful about so many different things. Where is your Jesus? If you're a sheep, the amount of understanding that you're looking for might be outside of your realm. If you're a sheep, the question you need to be asking is, where is my shepherd? And I will tell you that your shepherd is right there. We've all known that death is a part of life. And yet in the last year or so, we're demanded to focus on fear and death more than even before. Some of us in this room are afraid of getting COVID. We're facing persecution. We're going to a big city, some political agenda. Some of you are racked with fear of how the world will be for your grandchildren. And some of you are angry at people you go to church with because of their fear. Jesus conquering 
And showing us a mastery over death should allow us to see that we are not a fearful people, but a shepherded people. Let, let me remind you all that we are all sheep. And if you are struggling and you cannot understand what God is doing in our time, then that is the perfect place for faith to carry you deeper into Jesus and farther away from demanding your own understanding. I'm not saying don't engage with the world around you. I'm saying that when you do engage, don't do it out of fear. I'm saying that when you do act or don't act, don't let fear rule over you. Faith is about not understanding. I don't know why illnesses exist. What I do know is that Jesus has brought his faithful people through things that you could not imagine. Jesus has brought faithful people through things like the Black Plague that killed 50% of the population of Europe. And he will bring us through a pandemic like this. Jesus has brought people through kingdoms and governments that are corrupt, not corrupt. All of that has happened. Jesus has done it. And he will do it again. Why? Because he is the good shepherd. And he will shepherd his flock. And you, if you are in him, are his flock. You do not stress about the days and the times and the places and the people. Why? Because they are not sovereign. Who is sovereign is the one who you are shepherded by. You walk in a humility and a love, a dependence that makes you the type of people who are fresh air in a world filled with fear and finality and death. You are the ones who point to a shepherd when people are lost. We are not the type of people who run in fear of anything because nothing can touch us. The shepherd has brought us along. That's not a brazen boldness. That's not, a, that's not me saying that, that I can't die from COVID. That's me saying that God can do whatever he wants. He's God, and he's also my leader. And I pray that as a church, as we step forward in understanding who Jesus is, we may not understand the world around us, but I can promise you this. I can promise you that our shepherd has us. That John 10, being before John 11, shows us something really fascinating. No matter what you have as a framework in your world, Jesus has outcomes that you can't see. So step into the place of dependence on your shepherd. Let this wash over us today. You've heard this before, but hear this in light of wherever you're at, whatever's going on. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, I am sorry for how often I personally don't feel or don't lean into being led. I am sorry for how often I ask you for leadership out of fear rather than faith. And Lord, I I know that I can come to you in any circumstance. But Lord, I know for me, I don't know how to pick through things, but I just know that you, I just know you. And I want to walk in that humility. And I pray that my brothers and sisters would see you right now and lean into you that you would be their safe space, that you would be the person that they literally climb under the shadow of your wings when things are good in their mind and when things are bad in their mind, Lord, I pray that they would see you. We trust in you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.